Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institutes for Deterrent Studies. Of course, you may remember my voice. Uh, it's been gone a few weeks, and now I'm back. I'm, of course, Adam Lowther, joined by Jim Petrosky, Chris Stewart, and a new part of the roundtable discussion is Alex Littlefield. So Alex Littlefield is a fellow of the National Institutes for Deterrent Studies, and he got his PhD in Taiwan and has lived in Taiwan and uh, China for you know about 20 years. So well, glad you're with us, Alex. It's great to have Happy you. Happy to be here. Now, part of the reason that we wanted Alex to join us today was so we could discuss a new article that just came out about a week ago in Foreign Affairs. The article is titled, America and China are not yet in a Cold War, but they must not wind up in something even worse by Wang Jishi, who is a professor at Peking University. Now, Alex, the article makes the case that there are a couple similarities but we Americans mistake this current competition between the U.S. and China as a new Cold War, when in reality, the good professor argues that that's not what it is, nor should we let it get that way. And he offers five reasons why it's different, and then he suggests how the United States can make this relationship work and, and of course, prevent a Cold War or something worse. But I think you and I might not necessarily agree with Professor Wang. So can you kick us off and tell us where you think uh, the article may have it wrong? Sure, I'd be happy to, Adam, and thank you um, to James and Chris and the crew for allowing me to participate on this podcast. This article uh, begins like a lot on the topic of Sino-U.S. Cold War in beginning by comparing the relationship between China and the U.S. today versus the U.S. and the USSR of days gone by and that's kind of the starting point and then where we argue that, okay, well, it's not a Cold War because this doesn't resemble what happened between the Soviet Union and the United States. But that'd be kind of like saying that what's happening in Israel is not a hot war because it doesn't resemble the hot war being fought in the Ukraine and Russia. So probably part of the problem is just this definition of Cold War. And if you look back in history prior to the Soviet um, U.S. Cold War, there were other types of Cold Wars going between other countries, other situations. Um, thinking like, for example, the Great Great Game in Central Asia or uh, France and Spain in the like 17, 18th centuries. So there was in Europe, there were a lot of various Cold Wars going on before they became hot wars. And so to say this doesn't look like the U.S. and the Soviet Union, therefore it can't be a Cold War, is not is a non-starter. So it is a Cold War 
the question is then, or the recommendation then is, so how do we prevent this Cold War from happening? And what are some of these differences or what, or what are some of the risks? And the risks that the author identifies are really, they're really not the hot spots or the hot points that, say, I think the people on this call would identify. So one of his big conclusions that, that we can prevent this hot war is we need a hotline to prevent misunderstandings over like any kind of conflict in South China Sea which was kind of what um, Biden was hoping to get out of the recent meeting in um, San Francisco, the APEC meeting with him and she. But um, I think there's just way too many elephants in the room that were not really touched on or addressed and about really where the responsibility lies between the U.S. and China and who's to, if we want to say blame or who's to be responsible for the, the tenor of this relationship between our two countries. So let me then follow that up with who is to blame for the tenor of the relationship between the U.S. and China? So um, he, one of his arguments throughout the paper is that because the U.S. sees China as a um, communist dictatorship, so therefore we are trying to contain it, but that just doesn't hold any water because when, we, um, when Nixon went out to reestablish relationship with China, they were communists. In fact, Mao was still alive and running the show. And then when we allowed him into WTO, they were still communists and they had just had the Tiananmen massacre. So the, the fact that they're communists or the fact that their dictatorship never was an issue for us to engage with them and to, you know, trade with them and to share our technology with them. So we were never trying to contain them before those reasons. In fact, one of our allies, Vietnam, is a communist country. Why do we work with Vietnam? So it's not about we're very um, puritanical and we only work with other democracies. We have a long history of working with non-democratic countries. Of course, you know, we have the case of like Taiwan, Philippines, South Korea are some of our closest um, allies in that part of the world. We're all dictatorships uh, going back through the cold war. So um, his argument that we want to contain them because they're Marxist or because they're a dictatorship, just, it just um, flies in the face of, our history with China and our history with other dictatorships. Now, Chris, you also had some views on this and had some disagreements with the author. What was your take on this argument? Well, I thought, I think it's uh, really clear that he's trying to frame the argument from the Chinese communist party's point of view, from the leadership's point of view, and, and look, they would love for the West, they would love for Americans and for American leadership to say, you know, things are sure swell with China. Uh, you know, I agree. We're, we're not in a Cold War with China. We, you know, we have no disagreements with them at all. Uh, you, and, and by the previous definition of a Cold War, uh, you're right. It, what Alex was saying, this is a little bit different, but that means absolutely nothing. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I actually don't care if we call it a Cold War or not. I mean, here, here's the deal. Uh, China is a rising rising power. Very clearly, they state their goals and ambition. If you if you know the Belt Road Initiative, if, uh, if you follow their own rhetoric, what their own leaders say, which is their objective is to be by the 100th anniversary of the creation of the Communist Party in China to be the world's single dominant power. Economically, diplomatically, militarily, culturally, and that's her goal, and they're moving methodically towards that goal. Uh, and and the West has to decide: Are we going to oppose that, 
Are we going to try to instill Western values, values of human rights, values of equality, values of, of freedom? Uh, because they're, they're asymmetrically opposed by the leadership of the Chinese communists, which is very, very clear. So, you know, whether they call it a Cold War or not, I, I, again, I don't really I don't really care. I think they would like us to assume and to believe that it's not any stress in the relationship at all. I mean, kind of following what Alex was saying, uh, you know, if there's a kinetic war over Taiwan, I don't think they're going to call that a hot war. They're going to call it something else. Uh, I think they thought they acted very responsibly during their COVID response. I think they consider themselves trusted business partners. But we know that those things aren't true. Uh, and and I think, you know, if you consider the entirety of this article, you have to know that that's not true and kind of see things for what they are, despite their efforts to try to reframe that and to minimize, uh, you know, the potential conflicts in ideology that there is between China and Western values and Western democracy. Well, this brings back to mind, you know, one of the there was a within the political science community. 20 plus years ago, uh, you know, very famously, there was the clash of civilizations and the argument that there were these very distinct civilizations and one of them being Western and then, you know, Eastern or cynic civilization and that they would clash. And the argument was dismissed. It was, you know, roundly sort of poo-pooed as as incorrect and a, a misreading of history. But I wonder if as we look at how China sees the world and the West sees the world and sees the international environment, many of these things and these these cultural norms and expectations are very different. And so I, I wonder if Part of what this clash is, is it's a clash over expectations and norms and what we think is appropriate behavior and what the Chinese think is appropriate behavior are in direct conflict with each other. And so, Jim, you want to jump in here? Yeah, well, thank you, Adam. And uh, yeah, first of all, for our audience, uh, Adam didn't mention Curtis is not here. We didn't fire him. Uh, He just was feeling under the weather today. Uh, So I want to do a shout out to Curtis. Hope you're feeling better. Um, And glad Adam's back along with Alex and Chris uh, with us. But, you know, in the show prep, um, I was going, I I told Alex, I was going to poke something at him during the show and he had to be ready for it. But he already answered the question. He says, we have to define what the Cold War is. And you know, in doing this defining the, you know, defining something from an article that, that may very well be what China is wanting us to respond to. And if you look at it, I, I'm a scientist. So I always start out by lay out your definitions first, because if I don't know what your definition is, then we have no point of uh, you know, point to launch a, a discussion. So I looked it up on good old Google and it says a, a cold war is a state of conflict between nations that does not involve direct military action, but is pursued primarily through economic and political actions propaganda, acts of espionage, or proxy wars waged by surrogates. This term is most commonly used to refer to the American-Soviet Cold War, 1947 to 1991, which, by the way, in 1991, I received my, or I think it was 1993, I got my Cold War badge in the Army, so, you know, I helped out with that, so thank me. But anyway, thanks, actually, to all the people that have done that. But seriously, um, that definition is interesting, because if you read that definition, 
uh, we're in probably a cold war with a lot of people right now because they would fit anywhere in there. So I, I want to go back to what Chris said, because I was going to ask Chris, I, I, was, I was wound up, I was going to, going to catch him on a question and he already answered it. And that is that we have to define uh, what China wants to do. And when I was at the Air Command and Staff College, for all my Army folks out there, I did go to Air Command and Staff College. There was one thing major that I took away from that, and that is when you look at conflict, it's not what you think of yourself, and it's not what you think of your adversary, but it's what you think your adversary thinks of you. And this article sort of tells us that as though we are going to respond in some way to being labeled in a Cold War. And I'm not sure in this article, I see where the end result is. And I'd be curious what Alex and Chris and Adam say about that. But I'll just put my piece on this. And that is, I don't care if you label me in a Cold War, because we were in a Cold War with Russia, by the way, or the Soviet Union, excuse me, for a long time. And it never led to a hot war. And now it's over. And now they're sort of warring around in Ukraine. So maybe a Cold War state is not a bad state to be in. Or the second question that I throw out is if we are in a cold war, how do we stop from going to a hot war? Cause that's deterrence. That's what we want. So I'll leave that for everyone else to answer since they're the experts. I tell you, one of the things that he, he talks about is he talks about the differences between the Soviet union and the United States. And what I took away from that is, you know, we won the cold war. And we won it. And part of what I'm looking at is, you know, he, he mentions that we've got 5 million Chinese nationals in the United States. We, we didn't have 5 million Soviet nationals in the United States actively engaged in the Thousand Talents program and, and you know, bring, conducting industrial espionage. We've all seen the espionage that's taken place at the national labs that has been funneled back to China. You know, it's, it's been called a sieve. Uh, So we, we've got, you know, the universities, the engineering programs, the advanced science programs, we're, we've now educated, you know, our, our adversary. We, we have so many, we, we bolster the Chinese economy to allow it to conduct the types of espionage to grow its economy, to build the military capability that allows it to then do these things. And so what I walked away thinking is, well, you've given me a list of things I need to stop doing because if I want to ensure we don't have a cold war that you might win, I now know what I need to do. And I need to look at you more like yeah. the Soviet Union. That's that's now I don't know if you guys took that as a sort of a lesson learned, but that's what I did. Well, I just think that's such a great point. I mean, and let's elaborate on it just a little bit. I mean, can you imagine in the mid 1980s, you know, when I was I, I was a young lieutenant just joining the Air Force. But can you imagine if at that time, if we'd been dependent on Russia for, say, 98% of our antibiotics or, you know, 92% of, uh, you know, a lot of the compounds we need for, uh, for our, our, you know, for our healthcare system or, or to the degree that we are dependent on, on Ru- our China for trade. I mean, we would have at the time said this is a mistake. 
we shouldn't allow ourselves to become dependent like that. And let, yet we've allowed ourselves now, as, as you said, Adam, to the point of, you know, millions of Chinese nationals, many of them members of the party, uh, hundreds of thousands of students who are here. And by the way, some of our most elite institutions are dependent on those students who pay full tuition. They pay an awful lot of money to come here and to go to school. And uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on about, uh, you know, mistakes we've made recently that we didn't make in the 1980s. And, and let me conclude with this last one. Uh, there was no question in, the, you know, throughout the Cold War that the United States was going to defend NATO, that, that there was there were lines in the sand that we would have put our national security on the line. We would have put uh, our our blood and treasure on the line to defend. And the previous Soviet Union knew that. And it had to be a deterrent for them. In, in fact, history has proven that it was a deterrent for them. And that's one more thing where we just haven't done nearly as good a job as you talk about deterrence and the way to avoid the Cold War from going to a hot war. Well, that the answer to that is proper deterrence. And, and one of the keys to deterrence is, is having the military capability, but communicating that capability and that commitment and having the public will, the national will to implement that strategy. And I think in some of those, we've actually been quite deficient when it comes to our deterrence regarding China. Yeah, I would say that's, that's one of the things in this communication that I, I get lost both in articles like this and listening to you know, talking heads on on the television and in other podcasts, et cetera, is it just doesn't seem that there's a clear, coherent message of what we are willing to do, what we are not willing to do, what will cause an action or a reaction. And maybe that's the maybe that's that ambiguity that we talk about. But somewhere along the line, our citizens have to understand what's coming. And you don't know what's coming if you listen to all those pieces. And that's a concern for me because in the end, it's the citizenry that allows the, the legislators and the, and the government to function and, and know those choices can be made with some backing. And you, I just don't see it. That's very difficult. And I'm curious how an article like this might spawn that kind of conversation. One of the arguments they're making, too, is that we are so um, far ahead in our military for the next 10 years. It's kind of like we don't need to worry about the issue of deterrence. Like we clearly have that in the bag right now. Well, what else did you think, Alex, were in terms of this? Am I overstating or Chris and I overstating, you know, sort of the problem as we see it in terms of, you know, the, this large, you know, Chinese national problem in the U S the, you know, sort of the economic espionage. I mean, if you've ever seen the TV show, the Americans, it's a, it's a great TV show and it's all about, you know, these, uh, I forget what they call them, but they were, you know, Russian spies who lived as the illegals, right? The illegals. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they were in the U S to conduct industrial espionage, but mm -hmm. the Chinese have put them to shame by having, you know, millions of Chinese nationals who they then, you know, use leverage on their family back in China. And, the, you know, it's this constant stream of information back. And if you look at the scientific and technical journals, 
that are you know now being produced in China, you you see that shift of information that's flowing from the U.S. to China. And I, I wonder, are are we being too harsh on the Chinese, or are we, you know, do we have it about right? Well, kind of where is that? Well, the article is misleading because what it's um, implying is that a lot of these things are reciprocated. So while there are millions of Chinese here and many students studying in our universities, there are only 350 Americans studying in Chinese universities. We're talking 350 people in a country of over a billion. As opposed to, I think, 90,000, right? I think the article said 90,000 Chinese here. Could be so, but we're talking 350. We only have 350 of our own citizens studying in China. So there's not a lot of reciprocation. And it's not because Americans don't want to go or they're not interested. It's because China is um, making it difficult for for foreigners to remain there. Uh, and on a personal level, that's what happened to me because I was living in Beijing. And even though I had a resident visa, I couldn't get back in because of what happened through COVID. Uh, so... And, other thing is they do, and you touched on this, is where um, they're saying, well, this is a, a different day and age. You know, we were uh, we didn't really deal with the Soviet Union. You know, they had their own system. We have our own system, but we're very integrated into the Chinese economy. Like this is a mutually beneficial thing. But China, for their part, um, you know, their 2020 goal for 2025, their five year is to be um, techn- technologically self-sufficient. You know, they want to be the innovator. They want to be holding all the cards. So, yes, we are integrated, but it's in, an integration. We are dependent upon them where they are dependent upon us still in some areas of technology. They would like very much to get that technology from us so that they can also remain independent in those areas. Uh, one reason for Xi coming out here recently is basically because they are their economy has issues and they really desperately want FDI. So they're coming out with a thing like, oh, this is a good place to invest for friendly investment, investment place, a lot of opportunities. So please um, send us more money. So they're dependent on us for money. They're dependent on us for high-end technology, but we're dependent on them for all other things in the supply chain that are critical for our own um, defense and uh, uh, basic technology needs. I mean, let's take, you know, we've got a a huge push right now to go, you know, all electric. You know, we're going to have our auto manufacturers are going to be building nothing but electric cars soon. And, and, President Biden is 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 trying to push us off of the internal combustion engine, but the reality is we're almost completely dependent upon China to make that happen. They produce all the lithium batteries, yeah. you know the the raw materials. I, I wonder is 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 there anybody who sort of sees? You know, I, I almost wish we would do more comparison of China with the Soviet Union and say, well, would it have been a good idea for the United States to have been dependent upon the Soviet Union for much of its industrial capacity? Would we wanted, you know, would we have wanted the Soviets to have our entire automobile industry be a Soviet automobile industry? You know, when, when the Soviets were dependent upon us for food, we actually use that for leverage against them. And we engaged, Ronald Reagan engaged in currency war where he would buy rubles and then dump them to destabilize the Soviet economy. And we used, 
we used grain and we used other products that they needed from us that we did not need from them as leverage. So I wonder why we don't think that the Chinese might do the exact same thing to us. Yeah. And of course they're going to, well, there's so much to say on this. I mean, look, uh, California, a few other, a few other States and now president Biden uh, are either already have or in the process of mandating that all new vehicles sold after 2035 will be electric. Well, look, you can mandate that we all grow wings and fly after 2035, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. And, and it's just a physical, it, it's, it's an actual uh, impossibility that every car at that point is going to be, is going to be electric, not without doing a couple of things that many, many interested groups, activist groups, environmental groups will never allow us to do. For example, expanding mining here in the United States. Uh, and at the same time, as, as you said, Adam, they're more than willing to allow us to be entirely dependent for this emerging technology, which has great promise, by the way. I, I mean, I, I'm, I encourage the electrification of the economy as much as we can. I think there's advantages to that. But it has to be done under realistic, uh, realistic assumptions. One of them being, well, okay, if you're going to do this, you've got to have the rare earth minerals in order to create these batteries. And do we want to be dependent on China for that? And the answer to that is clearly no. And by the way, if you care about the environment, who do you think does that more carefully? The United States or China? I, I can take you to a lithium mine in Congo that's owned by the Chinese that employs, in fact, compels something like 12,000 children to mine there in buckets and by the way, they they lose a couple hundred kids a year to accidents and how dangerous it is. And who would argue that that's that's a good uh, that's a good outcome for us uh, as we're dependent on China? And then that those those ores, by the way, they're not refined there uh, on the continent of Africa. They're all exported to China, and they're responsible for actual you know where where they uh, refine them and and the economic. Uh, outcome that comes from that, which is, you know, good for the Chinese people and the workers there. I mean, um, that's just one example of us, you know, putting ourselves in a position to be so controlled by China. And I got to say one more thing and then, and then I'll fall silent because maybe I've talked too much in this case. But you, in the last few wars or conflicts we've had, for example, in, in Ukraine, uh, the American people themselves have paid very little price for the conflict in Ukraine and the tragedy and the, and the loss of life, uh, the violence uh, that has happened there. Hard to watch, but the truth is, is that most of us haven't been impacted by it directly. Uh, and, and that's generally true of, of many of the, of the kind of conflicts we've had, Iraq and Afghanistan, unless you're a member of the military or, the, or unless someone in your family has served or sacrificed. Those people pay a terrible price, but a lot of Americans don't. But a conflict in the South China Sea, a conflict with China will affect every single American, if for no other reason than this. Recent analysis, and, I, and this is pretty shocking, they say as a minimum, it's going to be a 9% reduction in our GDP if we have a hot war with, against China in the South China Sea. 9% reduction in GDP. And you say, well, that sounds like a lot. That's a bad deal. Well, here, here's comparison. The Great Depression was 7%. 
So, I mean, it's so important for us to maintain the deterrence. We don't want conflict there. We don't want conflict with China, but we're going to avoid that conflict if we're, if we're clear-eyed about the threat and if we take uh, steps to provide for deterrence. But if we fail in that, it's a catastrophe for the global economy. It's a catastrophe for the American economy, and it will be painful for every one of us. It's not something we're just going to watch the news and go, wow, you know, the conflict in Taiwan sure is a bummer. Every one of us will be very intimately impacted by it. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that uh, that comprehensive view here. And I, I want to go back. It, it is exactly this concept of reliance on China for our transportation, if we moved electric vehicles, or a reliance on China for our semiconductor industry, reliance on China, fill in the blanks, that we never would have done in the Cold War with Russia, that was what I brought up earlier. There's no comprehensive view that you can see in our relationship. It's as though it's as though we talk out both sides. Like we can we can re- rely on China, but not be reliant on China. And I I think that becomes part of the concern, you know, from a citizen standpoint, but also from a leadership standpoint, and how you can develop an, an effective strategy to stop China from uh, you know being aggressive. That's what gets you into the hole instead of staying out of the hole. And that's always been my my difficulty, whether it's technology or energy or politics or sports, there's all kinds of things in which we as a country have become so reliant and so uh, so tied to China, we never would have done with any of our adversaries 20, 30 years ago. And I know some of our naysayers say, well, there you go, Cold War thinking. I just want to re- reinstate my comment. There was no hot war during the Cold War thinking. The, the old horrible Cold War days where we had a strategy to hold off the Russians, guess what? It worked and we won it. So if you didn't like it, well, you didn't like winning. So there's where we are. So Alex, let me, before we end the show, let me ask you, give me a couple of recommendations of what you think the United States should do. Uh, first is be honest with ourselves because um, China, while it's uh, you know status country with a government controlling all the industries, it's also a very mercantilist power and they're doing a lot of our dirty work for us. So they're the ones, you know, we're able to get the batteries cheaper. Why? Well, because they do have child labor and all this in Africa. So in some ways we're indirect beneficiaries of their brutality. And if we want things done in a proper way, it might cost more. So the question is, do we want to continue to, to do deals with the devil or do things the right way? And to be aware that there are individuals here in this country who absolutely 100% do the bidding of the communist party of China. One would be um, Gavin Newsom. Why is he such a darling of Xi Jinping? Because he basically has put his state, California, and it's not his state, by the way, he's an elected official at more or less the, the bidding or the mercy of China. And, and I can tell you, they would love the CCP would love for all of the United States to look like California. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. You said Gavin Newsom and Henry Kissinger, right? I think that was who you also meant was Henry Kissinger, because he also is a darling of the Chinese Communist Party. He's been probably their greatest ambassador in the United States mm-hmm. for the last five decades. But, yeah. well, but, in the, but in the case of Kissinger, he's just a figurehead. Um, but someone like Newsom, he actually has political power. 
Yeah, good good point. Now, before we end the show, because we're out of time, Jim, you had a bit of an announcement you wanted to make before we signed off. Well, yes, thank you. Yeah, so my announcement is uh, is sort of a, a response or, or, or continues from a, our last show. I mentioned that there'll be changes coming to our podcast. They're not bad changes. They're actually good changes. We're expanding our format. We're expanding uh, some of our content. And so you'll see in your podcasts uh, new logos, uh, updated music in some cases, and even a new show that's going to be part of our nuclear knowledge, uh, changing now to NIDS knowledge, and this show becoming the NIDS view, uh, representing that broadening and expansion of our organization, the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. So if you see the logo change, or you hear a little music change, or someone comes on by the name of Chris Stone to talk about real space strategy, listen to it because you're going to learn a lot. And so uh, I'm excited that we're expanding and we always want feedback from our listeners because they're the ones that said expand a little bit, get a little bit more of people in and we're listening to you. So thank you listeners and look forward to hearing from you over the next year. Back to you, Adam. Okay. Well, Jim, Alex, Chris, thanks for joining us again today. And of course, I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear Review. And of course, as always, I want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to The NIDS View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.